Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Also on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Please subscribe. Three CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. Three CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is Three CR Breakfast. Oh yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. The date is the 5th of March. It's going to be high 20s, I believe, not as hot as usual. So it's a bit of a lonely room this morning. Uh, I'm with you. My name's George, uh, but our usual Tuesday breakfast presenters are not here today, <laughs> taking a couple of weeks off. Lauren is uh, in a rural, working rurally now. Ayan is back to uni, and Anya is visiting some family, so she'll be back next week, hopefully. But fortunately, I've got my partner Amelia here with this, in the studio with me, helping me out, which is good. Good to have some moral support. So we've got a lot to cover today, which is pretty cool. We're going to start off with an interview with Lisa Heap, who is AC, an ACU adjunct professor, and she'll be talking about the Me Too movement and the report that came out uh, late last year around sexual harassment in the workplace. And we'll be talking about why perhaps, despite the Me Too movement, people are still not feeling like they can report these uh, instances of harassment in their work. Then we'll be speaking with a Tuesday Breakfast favourite, China Alisi from Floating Key. So China runs these amazing um, events that centre black and PSC communities uh, through, yeah, through these events and lectures. However, unfortunately, she will be leaving uh, Nam in a week and going back to the US. So she, we'll be talking about her plans to kind of take her movement um, where she goes to the US and, and how she's going to bridge communities um, here and overseas. And then we'll be talking to Lena Nallis, who's the Executive Director of Diversity Arts Australia, and they just had a Fair Play Symposium, which was all about inclusion and equity in the arts. Uh, so it sounded incredible, so I can't wait to hear more about what they discussed at that symposium. Uh, and lastly, we'll, we'll be talking to Fiona Patton, uh, leader of the Reason Party, about drug law reform. So we'll start off by talking about how it sort of works in the AFL and AFLW and then we'll talk about it in society more broadly. Uh, and also I forgot to mention that Ayan has very kindly also provided us with some a pre-recorded interview about some work that's being done at the Migrant Workers Centre in terms of the exploitation of uh, migrant workers. So to start off with, we'll go to the news headlines. And also, thank you to Ayan for providing these headlines. Now, uh, a journalism student 
is um, doing lots of fantastic work and is going to share it with us at Tuesday Breakfast, which is awesome. So for those who might not know, Pakistan and India have been in an intense exchange since February 14th, an exchange that some fear may escalate into war or worse, nuclear attacks. On February 14th, a car parked with explosives was detonated near a bus carrying Indian paramilitary personnel. The attack took place in the Indian-controlled region of Kashmir and claimed the lives of approximately 40 people. And a member of Pakistani-based radical group, Jashe Mohammed, has claimed responsibility. On February 26th, an Indian fighter jet-targeted what they claimed were Jashe Mohammed camps. Pakistan has denied that such stronghold exists. The Foreign Minister of India, Vijay Gokhale, said the preemptive strikes were based on information from intelligence. Since then, there has been scores of attacks and civilian deaths on both sides, with Kashmir civilians trapped in the middle. The last major friction between the countries were the Kargali conflict in 1999. ABC News reports that the two countries have fought three wars since they gained independence from British rule. According to Bianca Hall from The Age, former Manus Island men are planning to file a court case challenging their detention and the conditions on the compound. As Bianca notes, the men can leave the compound from 6pm to 6am, but especially, sorry, but outside of those hours they are restricted to the facility, which we think is excessive, especially since most of the men have been found to be genuine refugees. The men's detention also contradicts PNG's Supreme Court finding that rules indefinite detention is illegal and unconstitutional. The men's legal team consists of both PNG and Australian members. The men's requests, requests include compensation, the end of their detention and support with relocation. Last week, North Kore- Korean leader Kim Jong-un and President Donald Trump met for a two-day summit in Vietnam. It was the second summit between the two countries. Some of the topics discussed included diplomacy, lifting U.S. sanctions on North Korea, and denuclearization, meaning the reduction of nuclear weapons. However, the two countries view the process of denuclearization differently. The U.S. wants verifiable proof that North Korea isn't stockpiling on nuclear weapons, while North Korea wants the U.S. to end its military presence in the Korean Peninsula and to end its relationship with South Korea. So it's no surprise an agreement wasn't made and the meeting was cut short. Australia's publishing guru, Ida Butros, is the ABC's new chairperson. She was picked by Scott Morrison and will chair for the next five years. Butros has been working in media since she was 15, her first gig as a copy girl for Australian Weekly. In 1971, she co-founded the magazine Clio alongside media mogul Sir Frank Packer. These are just some of her illustrious achievements. Her selection has been heralded as a win for feminism. However, as Bell Hooks writes in Feminist Wire, the work does not end with the fight for equality of opportunity within existing patriarchal structures. And lastly, WA State Coroner Ross Fogliani who investigated the death of 13 Aboriginal children and young people in the Kimberley region, confirms that 12 of the deaths were suicides and had recommendations, 42 recommendations to Parliament. The ABC reports that Ms Fogliani has issued an urgent call to action to WA authorities, lawmakers and community leaders. She stated that the tragic individual events were shaped by the crushing effects of intergenerational trauma poverty, and poverty upon entire communities. 
and that this inquest has laid bare the urgent need for, to understand the deep inequalities giving rise to the current poor state or well-being of Aboriginal people in the Kimberley region and to address the factors that elevate the risk of Aboriginal suicide at a community level, community-led level. Pardon me. Despite this urgent call, very little has been discussed on the matter in the Western Australian Parliament in the last two weeks. Labor Premier Mark McGowan has vowed to launch a Kimberley Youth Justice Strategy as part of the government's response, including a push to keep young people from the region and uh, young people from the region out of prison. We are yet to hear whether or not the government will actually be implementing the 42 recommendations from the inquest. Brunswick Music Festival back for two weeks this March, featuring international acts. Flahio, Jay Mascus and Snail Mail, plus an epic local contingent including Jazz Party, The Necks, A Swayze and the Ghosts, The Murlocs, Tando, Jade Imagine, Sophie Grophy, Genesis Owusu, Beck Sandridge, Hexdet and so much more. For the full program and tickets, head to brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. appreciate like you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this you know it's very good it keeps a positive mindset in our mind you know and we really appreciate it because of where we can yeah i want to be a better better man yeah because of where we can beyond the bars is 3cr's annual prison project giving voice to aboriginal and torres strait islander inmates across victoria you can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime how do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know? Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 When I first come to this jail, it was about 10 years ago, and, and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day, and they call me Auntie Marlene, so it helped me recognise and realise that I pulled myself up like, yeah. They're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Like an ancestor, you'll know way back when. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're going to go to a live interview now. We've got on the line Lisa Heap, ACU adjunct professor and former executive director of the Australian Institute of Employment Rights. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Lisa. Thank you. So just a content warning before we begin, we will be discussing the Me Too movement and particularly sexual harassment in the workplace. If you need to tune out, this interview will go for about 10 minutes and I'll provide the numbers for support services at the end of the segment as well. And I also just wanted to note at the start of this interview that, of course, civil rights activist Tarana Burke started this hashtag and movement back in 2006 
to create opportunities for survivors of sexual assault, particularly black women survivors, and to allow them to connect and heal. And since this hashtag, the movement has become a worldwide movement, and today we will be discussing its impact here in Australia. Thank you so much for joining us, Lisa. Great topic to talk about. <laughs> So in the Australian context, can you give us an overview of what the Me Too movement has done to draw attention to people's experiences of sexual assault and harassment in the workplace? Yes, from, from my point of view, I think the Me Too movement has allowed us to understand how common the issue is. And I think, you know, it's raised it to the, to the, to the public um, forefront of people's conversations. And for people coming out, particularly um, well-known people coming out, um, expressing their experiences, and particularly when that's been um, allegedly perpetrated by a number of other well-known people, has meant that we've been able to kind of put a spotlight on the issues of sexual harassment and other forms of gendered violence in the workplace. But, you know, one of the dangers of the way that it's happened in Australia because of this focus on celebrity and people who've been named... Um, and who are celebrities is that it, people think that it's only happening to a certain group of people and what we know from the um, report from the Australian Human Rights Commission um, releasing their data recently is that it's pervasive everywhere in every industry and every workplace and it's a problem that you know a common person experiences not just celebrities and not just perpetrated by celebrities. Mm, that's very true and if anyone's interested we will put the link to the report up on our, our Tuesday Breakfast Facebook page it's called Everyone's Business Fourth National Survey on Sexual Harassment in Australian Workplaces so since these conversations about sexual assault and harassment are being had much more often and more publicly do you think that there is still sort of a bit of a delay in that actually reaching the you know wider communities in terms of speaking out yeah, I mean, what we know is that majority of people who experience sexual harassment or sexism or sexual assault at work uh, don't report it. And so, um, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, you know, they've seen people report it before and they've seen that they got treated badly when they did report it. Um, they're usually in positions um, of less power in the workplace and so they're fearful that it will impact on their employment or their status within the workplace. Um, even those who observed it um, and who, who, who may not have experienced it but who observed it don't report it. Mm. And that's because they also get a, a sense that, you know, what would happen to me if I do something about this? Will mm. I be treated negatively in the workplace? So we've got um, a real problem of recognition in the workplace. But we've also got a real problem, um, you know, the Me Too movement spotlights the fact that this goes on. And that's a really, really important thing to do. What we need now is to switch into how do we stop it from going on, not just how do we report that it's going on. Yeah. But we need to move into a prevention headspace around around this issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I was really surprised by some of those figures, particularly the, the figures around bystanders, mm. that there is such a lack of action when people are actually seeing this behaviour um, happening in workplaces and not, and not feeling like they can speak up about that. That was really concerning. Um, yeah, 69% of those... Um, who had witnessed it in the human rights survey um, had did did nothing to intervene at the time or after the time reported. Mm. So you know that's telling us that it's people are seeing it happen. And you know we if you if you think about it um, as not the sort of acts of just the odd individual because we now know it's happening so um, 
pervasively that it's not just the one abhorrent individual who's doing this in a workplace. It's a cultural issue in workplaces. Then if you're seeing it happen and you've been normalised to that behaviour in the workplace, then first of all, the issue on recognising that it's wrong becomes an issue because if it's normalised practice, you're kind of uncertain. Am I clear? You know, should I? Mm. Then you've got that question about, you know, am I going to make it worse for a victim who's experienced it? Um, by doing something about it, then you've got that, well, what about me if I report it and, you know, it's not true or someone denies it and then there's a big um, problem with it, am I going to, you know, be adversely affected by um, reporting? So, um, yeah, so that's, there's, you know, there's a lot of work to do to, to, to understand it as a cultural issue that we need to address um, yeah. and prevent in the workplace. Yeah. Absolutely, and I, I would like to expand on this idea that some people choose not to come forward because they feel a complaint might be seen as an overreaction. How mm. might these sentiments, in your opinion, be compounded by gender, race, ability, sexuality and class? Yeah, I mean, um, we have very, very strong gendered norms in our society and they play out in the workplace. And so anyone who deviates from those... Um, you, you know, it's, it's going to be it's going to be seen as being that they're the other or they're the they're the people who 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 don't fit in. So, when you're actually saying, okay, I've learned these behaviours, I've learned these practices, I've learned these approaches to things as what it is to be a man in our society or or, or to um, act in a way that's masculine in our society, it's pretty hard. Um, to then have people turning around and saying or to try and work out, oh, okay, no, that's not right and what's the new standard? So we have to do a lot of work on our understanding of what it means to be men and what it means to be women and also what it means to be appropriate in workplaces and how power structures of the workplace actually support this sort of violence against both men and women. So, for example, you know, we know that at the heart of violence against women is the fact that women aren't equal in our society, that they don't hold the majority positions of power, that they're usually in vulnerable positions in the labour market, that they um, that um, behaviours that are about sort of dominant masculinities are rewarded, you know, the go for the bonus, go in hard, both sorts of behaviours mm. and attitudes are rewarded in our in in a lot of places, and so we have to really unpack all of those things um, in order to provide people with a culture that means that they will start thinking about what is right and what is wrong in a different way. Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's so pervasive, isn't it? Um, particularly in terms of, uh, as you mentioned, these power structures, and then you know it's not just patriarchy; it's also uh, it's also racism, it's also yeah. homophobia, and and yeah. and the fact that perhaps people who you know speaking out. Re- sometimes requires a certain financial position to be able to say that this has happened to you and then, you know, because you have that fear that you might be fired and that's not something that everyone can choose to do. That's right. Vulnerability in the labour market is a really key issue around whether or not you'd report or not report because, um, you know, when you think about it, if you're in a lower paid position and you're more precariously employed, it's a lot, you know, you've got a lot at stake Mm. if you... you, um, you know, do something that when you're uncertain about what the organisation's response is going to be and when you're actually challenged the power structures in organisations. But we also know, I mean, we do know that people who are not not necessarily just for low paid who are are failing to report. I mean, when you think about a lot of the women who've come forward in the Me Too um, movement um, most recently, 
then they are, you know, they, they would be women that you'd say, for example, looking externally are powerful women. You know, they've got, you know, a lot of money, they've um, got, you know, glamorous careers and those sorts of things, and yet they felt vulnerable in their own power structures as well. So, mm. you know, it's, it's, it really is about that power kind of dynamic, no matter where you are. Mm. Um, um, and, you know, if you're a woman of colour or, you know, different, you know, you know, different to the norm in that structure, then you're going to feel that it doubly, you know, it's going to be even yes. harder to try to challenge those structures. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I like, really like this quote from Tarana Burke. She said in an interview in the New York Times recently, she said, and I quote, I think the media doesn't really care about the stories of black women and the stories of women of colour. A lot of folks have slid under the radar, end quote. And so I guess, you know, taking that idea when you think about people's reporting of these situations, if they are scared that they're not even going to be believed and the fact that that might be compounded by both race and gender and other, and other factors, you know, it really makes it much more of a challenge for some people to speak out. Yeah, it, it does. And, you know, our system is one, you know, it's not one that would fill you with confidence mm. for dealing with these matters. I mean, um, you know, our anti-discrimination laws um, are, are meant there to be achieve gender equality. Um, our race discrimination laws are meant to, to, to achieve race uh, equality, but they're, they're actually defined now in such ways that they've been, you know, techni- technically oriented. They, they, you know, allow for lots of, um, you know, legal manoeuvring, and we don't have a place. With, uh, we don't have a, gen- a place where we can generally go and say, hey, this is the problem that I'm experiencing, and have it looked at as a kind of overall problem um, we have to sort of prove ourselves yeah. through all these hurdles to get even to that path and then we've got decision making bodies like the human rights commission who really aren't able to enforce anything um, so you know the system outside of workplaces doesn't fill yeah. you with confidence which means that the system inside of workplaces is really even more important and we find that mm. in those places um, yeah, those systems are not working either you know, um, I've represented a number of people in these sorts of claims. And the really interesting thing, I think, is what happens is when the claim is raised, at some point the organisation, even if the organisation isn't respons- you know, isn't directly responsible for the um, behaviours that have occurred or been complained of, at some point the organisation does realise that it can be vicariously liable and it goes into a risk management mode. And invariably, in my experience, that means that they start seeing the victim who's reported as the problem in the scenario. Right. And they yeah. in, in, inadvertently, in some instances, then look like they're defending the conduct um, that's been complained of. And so, you know, if you're in a if you're in a system, if you're in a situation whereby you already don't feel confident in the power dynamic that's happening in your workplace, why are you going to come forward to a system? complaints and resolution that you know is not going to support you either. Yeah, absolutely. If it's actively working against you, looking at the stats, if one in five are resigning after they've reported an incident, then, you know, as you say, it doesn't give you any confidence to bring these up, for sure. No, and most people will, um, most women I've represented will raise the complaint if they raise it in an equal opportunity or human rights forum, anti-discrimination forum, they'll raise it after they've left the workplace. Mm. Which, you know, you can completely understand, you know, in terms of their vulnerability. But, of course, that doesn't change the workplace. <laughs> you know, the perpetrator's still there, usually, or the culture is still there in the workplace. 
so it's a, you know this problem that we've got one of the major problems we've got with our system is that it's dealing with individuals and their complaints as if they are individual matters but when we we know culture and systems in workplaces are really part of a big part of the problem so mm. we're never going to fix that through just dealing with yeah. individual complaints this is one of the reasons i um, suggest that it's worthwhile as looking at the um, workplace health and safety framework as a, a different alternative way of looking at this because given the prevalence of sexual harassment that's now documented in Australian workplaces, I think every organisation should have um, this as a hazard or a risk, um, you know, that they should have, every organisation should be required under health and safety law to have a plan to deal with and eradicate um, sexual harassment and other mm. forms of gender violence at the workplace. Yeah. And if we went that way around and said, you know, so organisations are going to be looked at in terms of what your plan is and they're going to be talked at as in terms of talked to and talked with about what they're going to do to eradicate it rather than how they're going to manage complaints when they come up. I think that's a very different orientation to yes, the problem. I don't think it'll fix everything. And is that kind of like what, you're, what you... The kind of like thinking about it as a positive duty to act is that how yeah, you would describe right. that? Yeah, but it's a positive. Yeah, it's a positive duty. Not just under discrimination law. We want it to happen under health and safety law. Now, I would argue that it's there already, but culturally we don't see it that way. Our workplace health and safety regulators don't see it that way. Our health and safety representatives aren't trained on it in that way. Um, we don't know as individuals in the workplace to raise it as a health and safety problem. Mm. You know, we don't go to our health and safety representative and say, I think there's a problem um, with how this section of the workplace is operating in terms of I think it's supporting cultures of sexism which is going to lead to sexual harassment. We don't deal with it that way. Um, so I think that's a whole um, cultural shift that needs to happen, potentially a slight legal tweak, but I don't think even that's required at this stage. Mm. Yeah, I, that seems like it would make such a difference if you knew that it was part of kind of like a health and safety sort of framework, just to be able to speak out would make such a difference. I did want to ask it, two last very quick questions before we wrap mm. up. The first is that the survey... Uh, from what I saw, didn't seem to make any mention of refugee and migrant workers as, mm. well as, as well as trans workers. And I was wondering if you think that there is a need for further research mm. Um, mm. Uh, and getting these stats that really kind of get a mm. good cross-section of our community so we know who is being impacted. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think a number of people have made submissions to the inquiry that's happening now, the National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment in Australian Workplaces. I think they've raised this question. And I think it's beyond time where people start... who Beyond, beyond time where people comment that that, those, that data is not available and we actually have to get mm. to getting that data. Um, I know that the Victorian Trade Talk Council has got an initiative working on this at this stage and it's really difficult. There are different, um, there are a different set of complexities around getting, um, trans people and gay, gay and les lesbian people to, um, raise, um, their concerns, given their experiences of, you know, um, uh, discrimination mm. in the past. And, you know, with migrant workers, there's a real issue about access and, and getting their stories. Um, but again, I think Victorian Trades Law Council's got an initiative on my, yeah. for migrant workers, which might, might help bring, a, bring forward those stories as yeah. well. And it was good that we did see in the report, we did see that members of the queer community were more likely to experience sexual harassment. We'd, 
we were able to see that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were more likely yep. to experience yep. it, people with disabilities. Um, so that was all mentioned. So that was really good that they did collect that data and would be good to see more of that um, being kind of being collected in the future. And just to finish, um, what other broader changes do you think, I know this is a big question, uh, need to take <coughs> place so that people can have more faith that, uh, that their experiences will be heard and dealt with accordingly? I know you've touched on some of them already. Yeah, the first thing we need to do is we need to accept that it is the problem that it is and stop arguing about, you know, you know, sexual harassment doesn't really exist or it's a few aberrant people or, you know, a defence these days to sexual harassment that women report is, oh, yeah, but men get sexually harassed as well. Well, yes, mm. that's right, generally by men. <laughs> so yeah. we need to get beyond that and say it is there, we know it's there, it's in their community, we know violence against women in particular is, you know, going through the roof in the community, so why would it stop at the factory gate or the office door? So that's the first thing. The second is I think there's something in this looking at it as a health and safety question, so we need our health and safety regulators to see it that way and to put effort into this. We need um, our health and safety representatives to get trained on this, and it's, it's, a, it's a complicated matter and it's something that they should be able, but, that, but it's something that they can get their head around. And we need um, to build cultures of gender equality in workplace. So that means not just dealing with these examples of sexual harassment, but it means dealing with the power structures in the workplaces. So looking at who's in decision-making roles in workplaces, why are women concentrated in vulnerable positions in workplaces and the labour market more generally. So those are the sorts of things, that really yeah. the big ticket items that we really need to be looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Lisa. To answer that question in a minute, it was a big task. <laughs> um, and I think you're 100% correct. We need massive structural, societal, cultural change to really yeah. see you know, people's stories really be heard and, and to stop these incidences from happening in the future as well. That's right. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Are you passionate about films, interested in cultural diversity or wanting to get exposure for your own film? The Indonesian Film Festival is just around the corner with our main events running from March the 23rd to April the 10th. There'll be free film screenings, panel discussions and for filmmakers there's the short film competition. This year's theme is The Unknown and film submissions close on the 3rd of March. What are you waiting for? Go and check it out. The Indonesian Film Festival, iffaustralia.com, a 3CR supporter. Camp Anarchy is on over the long weekend, March 9th to 11th, at Camp Eureka in Yarra Junction. The aim is to bring anarchists, families, friends and those interested together. Come share ideas, skills, food, music and laughter. There is a bunch of radical workshops and skill shares over the weekend. 
Check out our website, campanarchy.org, or contact us on info at campanarchy.org, or via the Anarchist Events Facebook page. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie on 3CR. We're going to go to a pre-recorded interview that Ayan did with Sherry Huang from the Migrant Workers Centre about the exploitation of migrant workers. The Migrant Workers Centre provides information to migrant workers about their rights and how to challenge discriminatory practices. Sherry begins the interview by explaining how and why she got into advocacy work. I remember I came, I arrived to Australia back to 2010, and then because my background, I've done, um, I've done my master degrees in sociology, and then done a lot of project and research into um, digging to um, labor, labor issues. Mm. So that's why I'm a bit sensitive regarding to this labor force issue. So. Back to 2010, when I first arrived Australia, I was with a working holiday visa. And as soon as I participated in the labor market, I find out that a lot of dodgy things were happening, in particularly in regional area, the farm, farm sites. So... That was 2010, and then I've spent two years in Victoria Farms, traveling around, and then um, two years later enrolled to a um, PhD program, and then a cou- couple years later was part of a union movement. Why are migrant workers and international students vulnerable to exploitation? So the first thing will be their precarious uh, immigration status. So the thing is that the government set up a lot of a regulation, like different visa, they probably have different regulation. Like, for instance, for working hard visa makers, if you want to extend in the second year, you have to do 88 days in regional area. And then for international students, you can only work for 20 hours per week which is 40 hours for night. Mm-hmm. So, and then the second thing is um, the employer who are taking advantage of this precarious uh, status of um, um, migrant workers. Mm-hmm. And also I think part of the reason will be lack of uh, worker right information. Like, for instance, when I first arrived in Australia and then I find out I'm not quite sure if my pay is right. So I'm trying to look up, but even the war fair work ombudsman, it doesn't make any sense for, you know, for traveler, for overseas workers. We arrive here and then we're trying to figure out what is the labor law here, what's the law say here. And then, yeah, it's just quite difficult. And even with the immigration back that time, with the DIBP, which is immigration website, they, they didn't provide any work right information at all. Right. So you come into the country, you start the work, but then they expect you to find the information, they expect you to know what your rights are? Yeah. 
Wow.、Okay. And it's it was all in English. Remember.、Oh. <laughs> so for those of、uh, overseas workers come over here, they probably having lots of trouble to understand what's their right are.、Mm. You were also part of a 2015 Four Corners program. Can you tell us what happened? So the thing is, we trying because back that time was working with、um, NUW National Union for Workers, and then we find out lots of、uh, our sites, our in our industry that workers is like two different layers. One is like Aussie workers, and the other is a、uh, lot of migrant workers, and they got no idea what's going on. They don't know about anything, you know, about、um, union movement. So that's why we're trying to break up the barriers there. And then also back that time, four corners coming in, and then they want to know more about the temporary migrant workers, what's going on, and what's going on with the industry at the site. So that's why we、um, we travel around Australia, and then in particularly visiting the、um, some primary industry, which is farm side. The poultry side, and then we interview those of、uh, um, working holiday backpackers,、mm-hmm. and then see what's going on with their life there, their working life there. And turns out there's a, a lots of things going not right. Like for instance, the worker probably bundle with accommodation, so they have to pay accommodation. They have to pay transportation because. They probably having trouble traveling around,、mm. so the, there will be a so-called labor hire company. Some guy just posts an ad online and saying, "Hey, I got a job. I need hungry workers tomorrow," and people just joining, call him and saying, "Hey, I, I need a job." And turns out they have to pay a lot of things. They have to pay deposit for their accommodation.、Mm. That potentially they have to pay deposit for getting that work, and then. Yeah. So okay. So how are you making profit if you're paying for all these expenses? That's right. So I even encountered with a worker, and then she says she was traveled to Majura area picking、um, grapes, and turns out for three days she only earned twenty-seven dollars. So that's what we have we we found with、uh, with that program. So we detailing and then we、um, interviewing them, the、mm. backpackers, the, the workers, and then that's. The moment that we realize that the system so so yeah、mm, so so so、um, corrupt yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> okay so prior to the 2015 program it seems like this is that program was one of its kind because prior to that there hadn't been that type of research on that scale. Yeah, I remember when the show was just on. I even received、uh, some some sort of a comment was saying, "Why are they being exported? They have free choices. They can go elsewhere. They are backpackers, and they're supposed to be traveling or you know to do some other things."、Mm-hmm. But my comment is, that's what happened in the industry here in Australia. That's what happened in the farm. In Australia,、mm. so even those of、uh, free mind or free travelers, they travel to elsewhere. They will still have some poor or even lower classes or, or even lower 
in a very poor status, workers will come in、mm. to filling this work. If a backpackers they walk out, yeah, <laughs> it was still they were using like another visa subclass, which was like international students. Got you, got you, got、yeah. you. So there's always people to fill those、yeah. spots. So even if they do leave. The issue doesn't get solved. It's just、no. replaced with no. someone else. No, that's right. That's right. So, say someone knows about their rights.、Um, there's also other obstacles in the way. So, knowing what you have a right to do and not to do, and the support that's out there, that's one thing. But what else prevents them from taking the next step? I think, yeah, I think it's a system、mm. because, like. Um, even we have a couple of、um, cases we bring in. We were brought to the small claim court, and then even we get a judge order and saying, "Oh, yep,、yeah, um, this guy, blah 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 guy, you've been、mm. underpaying these workers, and then you have to pay this certain amount of money." But it was so easy, just claiming、um, liquidated, so nothing happened. Mm. So they're not fixing the problem; they're、no. just that's right. It's it's individual responses. Yeah, yeah. So that's what the、uh, migrant workers center trying to do. We're trying to gathering those of the workers together, and then we organize a campaign, and then we're trying to help those of workers. We wanna potentially we wanna the public know that. In reality, we got like nearly 10% or maybe more of a、uh, labor workforce is actually from temporary migrant workers、mm. these days. So the the figure is quite high, and then we can't just left them in the corner and saying, "Oh, that's your because you from overseas because you are not potentially you are not a citizen here." So I don't I don't want to protect you. I don't want to you know give you an exit out. So. Yeah, that's yeah. why the migrant worker center was trying so hard to、um, help those of workers. We empower their rights, but also we're trying to have、uh, figure out a long-term solution for yeah. Yeah,、mm. and one program is or campaign is wage theft. Yeah, wage theft. That's what we've been working on right now. Is because it used to be like. Like the case I just told you, the employer they were so easy just claim liquidated, so it's like they can shifting out. First, the thing is the employer they employing someone, but not through their own company. They probably create another ABN or using some their labor hire company to recruiting to sort out to sorting those of a labor force.、Mm. So while they being underpaid, the employer can easily claim that. They sh- they're shifting out their responsibility because they say I'm not direct employed those workers. Right. Yeah. So that's what happened. So what what happened now is、um, we're trying to rearrange this bad situation by bringing the wage theft、uh, legislation in. In that case, that it should be criminalized. Like the case I told you earlier about the、uh, liquidated, because the, the the employer was just easy saying, oh, unfortunately this company this operation be shut down,、mm-hmm. so I don't have to pay anything, and not、mm-hmm. to mention a couple of、uh, work injury cases. It's the same. It's like the human life doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Yeah. 
different visa, they have different striction. You you understand what I mean?、Mm. So, I think the system is delivery to separate to、um, separate those of a workforce.、Yeah. They're not. We we're not picturing a same fish just coming to onshore, coming to the harbor from the all the same. No, it's all different. So that's easy. They they create this situation for the workers' heart to be united. Right. Because everybody is in different situation and different visa. Like, couple of、um, irregular visa. Like they they probably coming in with a tourist visa、mm-hmm. and then looking for protection here. And then couple of like international students、mm-hmm. which is bundled with twenty、uh, hours per week、mm-hmm. working hours and then with working hard probably. You have to work certain amount, like 88 days, in regional area in、mm. order to extending your visa status.、Mm. So, different visa, different restriction. So it make it so difficult. That was Sherry Huang ending on the ways different visas and their restrictions make it difficult to unify migrant workers. If you'd like to know more about the Migrant Workers Centre, please call nine six five nine three five one five, and you can also reach them on their Facebook page by searching the Migrant Workers Centre. We'll also share a link of their socials on our Facebook page. So thank you so much to Ayan Shira for providing that content, and we're going to play a song now. Which we'll dedicate to Ayan. But just quickly before we do that, I forgot to provide some numbers after the interview we had on the Me Too movement. If anything from that segment was distressing for you, you can call the Centre Against Sexual Assault. They're open 24/7, and their number is 1-800-806-292. So the track we're going to go to now is by local artist P Unique, and it's called Hummingbird. It's dedicated to Ayan. I、uh, hope you have the best week. Your first week back at uni, love you lots. We bring black back independent, and we bring black back like Wakanda. Then we bring black back never ending. Then we bring black back never ending. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We have the pleasure of being joined in the studio by founder of Floating Key, China Elisi.、Mm-hmm. China is a Black American queer woman who came to Nam from the U.S. at the end of 2014. Her writing and event organizing involves community engagement, connecting and elevating marginalized voices, and centering Black visibility through creative and innovative thought. Floating Key operates as a curatorial platform that centers Black and PC communities through a series of events and lectures. Unfortunately for those of us here, China is moving to the U.S., but fortunately she aims to expand the Floating Key networks, bridging the community here in Nam to like-minded people overseas through online platforms. Thank you very much for making the time to speak with us this <laughs> morning, China. <laughs> It's、Thank、always a pleasure. <laughs> so. Having yeah, I guess having attended one of your events at AfroHub, so、mm. much work goes into it, just、yeah. from the the art and the the artists that perform, 
um, the event descriptions. You've always ensured your events are accessible. Why did you choose to work within this space of community event organising? Um, I think it really came from recognising a gap in a lot of the events that I was going to um, and looking to fill that in a way that would be constructive um, and hopefully bring about some sort of like new actions and um, inspire different types of events and change myself as a producer and creator as well. Um, so yeah, I think it just became really apparent that we couldn't continue to just have events that were simply recreational. Like there had to be a bit more to it. Times are too sensitive to just like only party, you know, like we've got to do something else yeah. than that. Um, so, yeah, I think just recognizing that there were gaps that needed to be filled and trying to suit that. Yeah. And that's that's so true that like you should be able to have both. And I'm sure there are a lot of people, like-minded people, that do want to be able to go and connect with other people but also have these kinds of political discussions mm-hmm. as well, definitely. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention, I was looking yesterday at the Roxane Gay event, which is happening, I think, later this month, and it's extremely expensive. It's like 90 bucks plus for a ticket. Is it? And I was sort of thinking about it in comparison to the events that you run, um, which have always been so accessible uh, in as many ways as possible in terms of the physical spaces, having Auslan interpreters, gender-neutral toilets, ensuring that no one's turned away for lack of funds. Yeah. And I just want, was wondering, why do you think it's really important to have events that are, you know, by and for the community? Yeah, I think we'll fail to really elevate and uphold the key figures of our community if we fail to make accessible platforms that they can reach and engage with. I mean... Some of the greatest thinkers don't have a lot of funds or they have certain setbacks that have been caused by systematic forces, what have you. But these are the people who have really like held the community and they're our greatest thinkers. And I feel like it would be a disservice to really put so much work in for these people to only have it accessed and digested by a group of people who aren't here for them in the first place. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, and then you're sort of claiming to speak about all these issues, but who's actually attending your events? Yeah, you know, so it's like one thing for us to have events where we're talking about black elevation and black indigeneity and talking about, like, POC solidarity and all of these things, but if all of our patrons are wealthy non-POC people it's like well what who are we talking to yeah yeah you know and can we really have these discussions outside of our communities when we haven't reconciled them within ourselves yeah absolutely and I guess that's what makes your event so special just being in those spaces and just feeling that energy where people felt like they could really share things and Mm. and really be with you know that kind of you're with like-minded people and people that you have shared identities and experiences with and that's so powerful yeah we've created some really beautiful things here yeah no it's been really special so what's the next step talk us through it the next step is relocating to detroit 
and connecting with a lot of the activists and event organizers there. Um, there are so many things that are happening in Detroit always, and that's why I'm always very proud to say that I'm from there. Um, but we'll be connecting with people in the community there, and I'll be doing my part as well to reach out to the different neighboring Native communities because the context there is much different from the context here of us having a black indigenous community and then there's all of these different diasporic black groups and so many different POC groups and the narratives look a bit different where I was born. Um, so first step is spending some time to really reconnect because it's been four years since I've been there. And, um, again, doing the same thing that I've done here, which is like, where can we fill in those gaps? Do certain things need to be, um, adapted to fit the climate? Likely they will, but, um, we'll be moving a lot of resources online to keep people connected. Um, looking into having some... I really want to do like a podcast of source, but I don't even know where That'd to start. So I don't good. know where to start should, yet, though. Yeah. I don't even. I'm not like. <laughs> I have no idea. I'd even turn on a device to get started, but uh, I'll learn. You, yeah, I'm gonna Piece learn. Um, so that's one of my goals, and we'll be having um, a blog that people can contribute to and stay updated through, and we'll continue to do work with the community here, mm. um, but it will be remotely. So the focus will just be really grounding, floating key, and basing it in Detroit for the time being, and um, seeing where that takes us, because it's always meant to be a nomadic platform. So this is kind of the opportunity to get that started right. and to make that a reality. Yeah. That sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it, it sounds like if there is different sort of setups in terms of activism in the US, mm-hmm. then maybe it could be awesome for people here to kind of learn from that and exchange ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's going to be a really beautiful opportunity for both of the communities that I'm now a part of um, to learn so much from one another and to really bridge the gaps that we need to bridge within the POC and black communities on a global scale so that we can really start to stand in a united power. Mm. Um, And I don't know that floating key will solve all of that, but I do believe that it has the power to assist in that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And that does definitely seem like kind of, a big thing that's needed moving forward is really using the internet to our advantage and making sure that we are making these real connections with people in other parts of the world and learning about how, you know, these sort of transnational movements, understanding how their struggles work and and what we can learn and how we can, you know, stand in solidarity with those movements as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And so are there any other projects that you're wrapping up here before you leave? Yeah, we've got um, a few shoots scheduled. I just don't have much chill. And I scheduled all of this stuff in the last (laughs) week of us. um, Yeah, just trying to 
do as much as possible and connect with as many artists who I haven't been able to work with through Floating Key. Um, so doing a lot of profiles on people. There's a lot of great content and imagery that's going to be coming out over this month and I'm fortunate to connect with a lot of incredible photographers and videographers so yeah we're working on a couple things that will just really highlight a lot of the talented folks here who might not be getting enough shine yet yeah yeah that's and that's the best note I feel like to leave on yeah definitely yeah well you've you know you've accomplished so much in your short space of time here and whatever you do wherever it is I know that Tuesday breakfast and other people here will be you know following and listening intently I I really (laughs) do thank you so much thanks for your time this morning yeah my name is Ruby Susan Mouth my pronouns are they listening to 3CR Radical Radio and that was Binde with Stella Rosie and Claudia on hello I'm Liz Wright welcome to are you looking at me and international day for people with disability Today on the show, we meet Trish Maloney and Frank Orbenti. Did you miss our 12-hour special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability? Radical Disabled programmers discuss the NDIS, Aboriginal rights, creativity, youth access, financial security, parenting, LGBTIQ, intersections and so much more. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2018 and listen back anytime. Celebrate International Women's Day with 3CR. On Friday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of non-stop radio by, for and about women. Join 3CR's fabulous women and genderqueer broadcasters as we talk with talented Melbourne musicians, songwriters, storytellers and activists making a difference. Featuring a special live broadcast from the 2019 International Women's Day Rally at the State Library between 5.30 and 6.30pm. For the full day's program, visit our website at 3cr.org.au. International Women's Day 24-hour broadcast Friday the 8th of March 2019. Tune in at 8.55am, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Brunswick Music Festival, back for two weeks this March, featuring international acts, Flahio, Jay Mascus and Snail Mail, plus an epic local contingent including Jazz Party, The Necks, Ace Swayze and the Ghosts, The Murlocs, Tando, Jade Imagine, Sophie Grophy, Genesis Owusu, Beck Sandridge, Hexdet and so much more. For the full program and tickets, head to brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter.
black magic. Either you do or don't have it. Young black and gifted, talking the whole package. Magic, magic, life, camera, action. You are now witnessing the power of magic. Wow, that was Baker Boy, and the song was called Black Magic. Baker Boy is doing so well, and it's so good to see, just going from stride to stride. So you're listening to Tuesday Brecky on 3CR. We've got another interview ready, um, and we are speaking with Lena Nalus, Executive Director of Diversity Arts Australia, and we'll be talking about the Fair Play Symposium and also the launch of the two-year Fair Play project. Thank you so much for Hi. joining us this morning, Lena. Uh, you're welcome, and hello. Good Hi. morning. <laughs> Good morning. So, reading, I was reading the media release for the Fair Play Symposium. It sounded incredible. Can you tell us a bit about the event? Um, yeah, sure. So, we, we over two days, we brought together um, basically a lot of people who'd been working for a long time in equity in, in trying to create a more equitable and inclusive arts and creative in, industries um, or sector. And we brought together people with, you know, particularly from First Nations backgrounds, people with disability and cultural and lingu- linguistically diverse um, people, activists, artists, uh, arts, you know, people in mani- management roles and producing roles to kind of talk about their experiences, the way that they did what they did, um, and to kind of share knowledge and practice in the room. Yeah, so it was it was it was about kind of acknowledging generations of work that's gone before and that exists uh, in in this space. And yeah, and, and at the same time as saying that we've got a new project that's happening and we're launching it. But we're not, you know, working in isolation or in the context where this work hasn't already been happening. Mm, yeah, that sounds so powerful. <laughs> I'm really <laughs> jealous that I <laughs> didn't go to that. That sounds so cool. You can check it out on the live stream. <laughs> oh, true. So that's still something yeah. that, so you can still listen or watch. Is that how it works? Yeah, yeah. It's on. It's on our. It's on Diversity Arts Australia's Facebook Great. page. So you, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I'll share that link on our Facebook page as well. So why do you think there are a need for these kinds of events? I think that um, if we don't keep... Uh, well, I think I think there's a few reasons. I think one of the reasons is that when you're working in this in these spaces, it can it can it can be very um, exhausting, and that sometimes you you need to kind of come together with other people to kind of draw strength from that and keep going. So there's a little bit of that. There's also the fact that in this project we're working with three really different areas and we often work, you know, independently, even though there's a lot of solidarity and connection that happens. We, you know, often the, you'll have like the, like I've worked a lot in the inverted commas cow space or people of colour space. And so, you know, you'll often be working in that space and then people with disabilities will be working in that space. First Nations people will be working in that space. Of course, we're, you know, we, we, there are, many times that we kind of come together but this was an opportunity to bring together those knowledges and kind of share and exchange and learn from what people are doing in the areas that they're working in and Mm. for me it kind of brings it kind of gives you well for me personally 
kind of I derive a lot of strength from that and a lot of courage as well like and, and kind of learn a lot so listening to the way people were doing what they were doing was yeah something that is, is kind of motivating for me <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's so that makes a lot of sense and I think it is a perfect description of why any kind of conference or symposium in symposium is so powerful when you realize that you're not the only one that cares about this issue but that there are other people working in sort of similar ways but also different in the way that you learn from that and it, yeah it is such a like incredibly important kind of thing to go and participate in yeah I think I think that's that was a really important mm. an important motivator for, for the symposium but but also that we wanted to um you know in a really um practical way kind of use it as an opportunity for learning and yeah, for the sec for all of us as a sector. Yeah. So I think some of the people who spoke were, you know, gave us an important kind of gifts of knowledge and experience that we can then take into the work that we do and, you know, adapt it, mm. but you know, draw on it. Can you tell us about some of the speakers and their messages? Well, we were really um, lucky. We we opened with um, Genevieve Greed. Speaking, um, who is a First Nation kind of uh, producer, creative director, worked in film, has worked in so many areas, and she talked about. I mean, I guess what resonated for me, she talked about a lot of stuff. Was that um, that, that things take take time as well, and that quite often there's a lot of work that's gone into the work that you're doing before you've even gotten there and um and you know she was specifically talking about like a first nations exhibition that she'd been part of curating that's a permanent exhibition and and the time that it took and also talking about the negotiations and the frustrations and um and and that i don't know sometimes in this work it's frustrating because you want it to happen really quickly and it should be happening quicker than it is but I guess, you know, for me that was a kind of encouragement of saying, well, yeah, sometimes this is going to take time, but it, you'll, you'll get there. Mm. You'll get there, <laughs> you know. So, um, oh, gosh, to so many amazing people, I things that really stuck out. So, yeah. I yeah, mean, I guess I people just have my, to watch the live stream. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I think I should be a no, lot more not at all, not at all. <laughs> I think it's given us a good taste of yeah what what is what is um what was discussed um but I just wanted to end on so you, so the fair play symposium launched the fair play fair play project can you tell us about this project yeah so the project has been so diversity Up Australia and our partners will be you know um managing this project over two years and it's been funded through creative victoria so basically over two years, we'll work with 20 organisations and, you know, our partners will as well to run training and tailored kind of mentoring for organisations to, I guess, get, you know, um, get better at working and and um, including and, yeah, you know, whether it be in terms of the content of the work that they do and the audiences and the people they employ across all those areas kind of to... Um, yeah, to, to strengthen their work in terms of how they're working or not working with people from First Nations 
backgrounds, people with disability and people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So they're the three main focus areas. So it's kind of exciting. Yeah. It's about really strengthening organisations and developing their capacity to do this work. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And I guess continuing that momentum from the symposium and ensuring that there are those connections um, moving forward. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so if people are interested, they can apply via our website. If there is anyone connected to an organisation that's listening, you can, and it's free. It's a free program. Oh, but, you know, you get a, I think it's a, yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'll try and track down that link and the link to the live stream as well and share that on our socials. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Lynn. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. No worries. Thanks so much, George. Have a good day. You too. Bye. <laughs> okay, take care. Bye. That was Lena Nallis, Executive Director of Diversity Arts Australia, and she was talking about the Fair Play Symposium, which was held in February. Transitions Film Festival returns to Cinema Nova this February with a selection of cutting-edge documentaries about what it means to be human. Featuring local and international documentaries, the festival covers social and technological innovations, big ideas and changemakers leading the way to a better world. Themes include art, activism, climate change, food revolutions, artificial intelligence and the future of our planet. Transitions Film Festival, February the 21st to March the 8th at Cinema Nova. Tickets from transitionsfilmfestival.com. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're coming to the end of our show, but we have one final interview. Very important speaker on the line with us this morning. It's Fiona Patton. MP um, for Reason for the Reason Party, and she's on the line with us this morning to talk about drug policies in the AFL and AFLW, but also drug reform in society more broadly. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Fiona. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> always love having you on Tuesday breakfast. Yes, I love being here. It's always the beginning of Parliament, the bells are ringing, <laughs> and um, yes. great to be on here. Well, thank you so much for making time. I know you're a very busy woman. So, <laughs> let's get stuck into it. So, how are drug issues handled in the AFL currently? You know, I, I think it might surprise some listeners, and it certainly surprised me when the the Players Association took a very, I think, a very compassionate and very sensible approach to illicit drug use uh, amongst AFL players. Now, you know, if they're taking performance-enhancing in drugs, performance-enhancing drugs, that is one thing. But if they are taking recreation, using illicit drugs recreationally, it's treated as a health issue. So if a young player is test positive for cannabis or ecstasy or or cocaine, um, they're counselled about it. It's They're, they're given treatment op- counselling options, they're given treatment options, they're spoken to about the risks of of, of um, illicit drug use, about the effects it'll have on their bodies, the effects it'll have on their performance, and the like. And this <clears throat> seems to be a very um, 
I think a very good way in a way that I would say that we should we should be treating all young people who experiment with illicit drugs and we know that young people do experiment with illicit drugs quite often they age out of it once they you know get full-time jobs or children or marriage or whatever it might be but this is about treating it as a health issue mm-hmm. and sadly there's calls to go back the other way of naming and shaming yeah. and firing people for using. And so why do you think that whenever it comes to drugs and drug addictions in sport and even in society, more generally, people are named and shamed? Why does this happen, in your opinion? It's in, in my opinion, and I don't... I, 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 this is my opinion. I think it's, um, it's, it's about the morality. It's also about the fact that People, um, it's considered immoral and that um, there's also a pleasure factor in this, that people, you know, are enjoying experimenting with illicit drugs, that they're not having the terrible time that other people might expect them to. Uh, And I think this means that they're judged more, they're judged harshly for it. Uh, We know that um, quite often that drug use is linked to mental health. Uh, sometimes we've seen it be, you know, people are self-medicating and we've, we've seen and heard that on many occasions. So if we treat drug use as a health issue, if we can check in and see how those people are and how they're going in life, that is a far more effective way of keeping them safe um, and quite possibly actually, you know, if they are, um, using drugs in a harmful way, um, helping them stop use. Now, now we hear that there's a call for um, for those players to be to be sacked, um, to be suspended, to be named, and and that that's not going to help anyone, particularly someone who's struggling with with a mental health issue. Mm. Um, I thought it was kind of I thought it was quite uh, it was quite a good remark from one of the players was saying, well, what about the management of the AFL? What about the, the, the refs? What about the, the coaches? What about everybody else? Are we going to test all of the people who work in the AFL offices, all of the people who you know, sponsor the game and, and the like? I mean, that, that is not the way to do this. We know people use drugs. We know that this is not very often it won't be affecting their game. They're using it um, during the off-seasons when they're socialising with friends and drug use is... Um, is, is now a, a, a very prominent part of, of many young people's recreational time. Mm. And so, Fiona, what can the Victorian government learn from the AFL's drug policy? <laughs> to adopt it. <laughs> and, oh, it which is, which is um, I don't think I would often say, you know, we should be looking at what the AFL is doing, <laughs> but, I, but in this case, you know, and, and certainly in some of their, their work with... Um, with, with the Indigenous community as well. I think they've, they've been doing some good stuff. But certainly in this regard, we have been calling for drug use and drug possession to be depenalised, to be effectively decriminalised, very much like it occurs in Portugal. And remarkably, that's really what the AFL is doing. They're, mm. they're, they're following the Portuguese model, which many of us um, understand has, been, has had very positive effects on um, on the health of the Portuguese community, but yes, effectively saying it it is not against the law to use a drug. 
it is not against the law to possess a small amount of that drug. And if you are found to be in possession or using it, um, the first you you are um, you're given a count, you're given a counselling session. Yeah. And there's a an assessment on that drug use, how that affects you. Is it is it something that's not affecting your life, or is it having a negative impact on your life? Is it as a result of something else? Um, you know, it, whether that's boredom or mental health, or um, or really, it's something that you do once every once every while um, to while socialising while socialising with friends or enjoying festivals or other experiences. Uh, and this this process in Portugal means Portugal's about the same population as us. They had one overdose death last year. Mm, wow. Yeah. Where we had thirty in North Richmond in one year. So the research so what, is there really to back this up. That's right. Yeah. And I think one of the most important and um, most important statistics, which is not often mentioned about Portugal, is that the age that young people experiment or try illicit drugs for the first time, um, that is, is getting older. So I think when they first started, the average age was about 15, and that now sits at about 18. And we know that the the older someone is when they first experiment with drugs, the less likely they are to have a problem a problem with their drug use. So these are really fundamental and so important. Um, it also enables us to have much better drug education with that with young people, uh, much more frank, much more honest information. A bit like you know you know with the push with things like pill testing. This is again saying, okay, we know you're going to use drugs. Now we just want to make you as safe as possible yeah. um, if you do go ahead and, and use, those, use those substances. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think this is really something we should be adopting at a state level. Yeah, and just being realistic and really just kind of letting go of this old hat idea that punitive measures will solve health issues, uh, which as you pointed out, the research shows that this just doesn't work at all. <laughs> you know, we're building more jails. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, we're 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 not we're not seeing drug use plateau out. We we just saw from the um the national wastewater study, which is the kind of a bizarre thing where they test the wastewater around Australia, that they estimate Australians used nine point three billion dollars worth of illicit drugs last year. Wow. So they're just saying no policy yeah. and. The get tough on crime, the increased penalties, the increased um, police presence at festivals has not stopped people using drugs. It has just made it more dangerous. Yeah. And so, Fiona, we've only got time for maybe one or two last questions. Can you tell us, have there been any outcomes of the Victorian government's inquiry into drug reform last year? Look, not really. What we, um, so that, it, it certainly, it's my to-do list. There was 50 excellent recommendations um, on that, in that report. And the government, in their response to that report, it was a, they, res they responded effectively by not having a response. It was a, it was a very nothing response. Mm. But um, I would encourage listeners to just sort of Google inquiry into drug law reform, um, Parliament of Victoria, and have a look at those recommendations. 
and they most of them are really sensible. You know, it's it's things like, as we say, treating drug use as a criminal as a health issue, not a criminal one. Um, we have three. We we work our drug policy under three pillars: harm reduction, supply reduction, demand reduction. We spend about two percent on the harm reduction. Um, I'm suggesting we we introduce a fourth pillar, so we separate treatment out, so we can provide treatment. There is, you know, too new, too numerous to mention here, but my my work over these next four years will be to get those those recommendations implemented. And so, just to wrap up, what is the Reason Party's position on drug reform? Just as a summary, uh, I think we should for the. Basically, we should be asking our que- that question, how do we keep drugs out of the hands of criminals and young people, particularly children? How do we keep them safe? And if we, ask, if we pose that question, the, the answer will not be more prohibition. So, again, I think the decriminalisation of, of use and possession, I think the legalisation and regulation of the most popular drug being cannabis, um, and allowing people to grow that at home, but also allowing it to be cultivated and, and sold for commercial purposes. I think those, those would be two measures that would go a long way to reducing the harms of drugs in our society. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Fiona. This Thank you. Definitely, you know, we're very thankful that you bring this issue to Parliament, which is something that I think a lot of members of the community really back you on. So thank you for that. Great. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. Brunswick Music Festival, back for two weeks this March, featuring international acts, Flahio, Jay Mascus and Snail Mail, plus an epic local contingent including Jazz Party, The Next, Ace Swayze and the Ghosts, The Murlocs, Tando, Jade Imagine, Sophie Grophy, Genesis Owusu, Beck Sandridge, Hexdet, and so much more. For the full program and tickets, head to brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Brunswick Music Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie on 3CR. We're just wrap up, about to wrap up the show. Just wanted to mention a couple of very quick community amount announcements. Firstly, the student walkout being held by RISE, which we had an interview about last week, will be held on uh, the 6th of March, which is tomorrow. So RISE is asking students to walk out of their classrooms at 1pm, where, wherever you are, hold banners that read end detention and pay two minutes silence for those who have survived and those who have lost their lives in Australian-run detention centres. And they're asking teachers and associates to join this action to show solidarity and to bring, to bring national and international wide attention. They request that you post your images on different social media channels. So it's a really important event to get down and support. The next event I wanted to quickly mention is the fundraiser for Liz Moore's Lily. 
and it's a gig fundraiser for Sister Girl Liz Mozilli, who has been steadily raising money on her GoFundMe page for the past 10, 10 months for her gender-affirming surgery. She's really close to her target, and so this gig is being held to continue to reach that goal. That's on Saturday, March the 23rd at Cross Street in each East Brunswick, and then uh, we played a few CSAs for it, but there was a whole bunch of ad, a whole bunch of, uh, there's a whole bunch of gigs on for the Brunswick Music Festival. I'm really excited for Emma Donovan and the Putbacks and Alice Sky on March the 17th, but you can read all about that online. Thank you so much for listening today. Next up is Accent of Women. I believe I answered a recording of an event that was held last night for in, in, in sort of advance of International Women's Day. See you next week.